Listener Production. Hi, I'm Helen McCabe, founder of Future Women, a club helping women to connect, learn and lead. Over my career, I've run teams inside newspapers, edited a magazine and launched my own business. This has meant building a team from scratch, leading through difficult times and managing the odd crisis. I've never had any leadership training because I thought you were either good at leading or you weren't. I thought being decisive was a key metric for success. I was wrong and it led me to make simple but avoidable mistakes. In this series, I'm doing what I should have done years ago, reaching out to people who I admire, who have also successfully run teams across all types of industries. So I can ask their advice on some of the common leadership challenges. My guest today has spent much of her career working on complex, explosive and emotionally challenging issues. Sally Neighbour's outstanding career spans Four Corners, 7.30, Late Line and Foreign Correspondent. A Walkley is Australia's most prestigious journalism award. Sally Neighbour has been nominated for 19 Walkley Awards and she's won three, so you get the picture. Sally has written on terrorism and Islamic extremism for the monthly magazine and the Australian newspaper. She's also written three acclaimed books. Sally recently stepped down as executive producer of Four Corners after overseeing a particularly robust period in its history. In this episode, I explore fearlessness. Is this something we can learn? But also, how does it impact others? And just before we start, please be aware this episode does contain sensitive information around the topic of the Bali bombings. Sally Neighbour, welcome to the Future Women Leadership Series. Can I ask what you've been doing since you stepped down from that coveted role as EP of Four Corners? I left the job at Four Corners in the last week of May and then on June 2, I got on a plane to Paris and then I spent four months in Europe. So I had this most amazing trip in Europe where I was joined at various times by different friends and my husband and my son and my brother and travelled and ate food and relaxed and had an incredible time. Then I got back about a month ago and um, I'm now just kind of settling into the new reality of not having to go to work, which is quite joyous at the moment. At some point I'll probably start going, hmm, now what do I do? But at the moment I'm just loving not having to go to work every day. So is it starting to formulate in your mind about what you might like to do or is it still too early? I've given myself until the end of this year to not even really think about it. Whatever I do, I want to do something completely different. I might write another book. I'd love to write historical fiction. I don't know if I've got it in me. I don't know as someone who's been, you know, working with facts and hard information for my entire life, whether I've got the imagination to write fiction, I don't even know, but uh, I'd love to give that a crack. So that's one thing I'm just thinking about. Do you identify with women or anyone for that matter who does struggle when they step away from a high-powered job to kind of find relevance? Are you so in need of a break that you're just enjoying the peace and quiet? No, I totally relate to that. And, you know, that's one of the reasons I took a four-month holiday because I knew that if I just left the job, went home and sat around, I'd be having relevance deprivation syndrome really fast. So I wanted a huge circuit breaker and some something that would just take me right away from what I had been doing. So I'm, I'm much more relaxed about it now. I want to keep doing a bit of work, 
that that feels kind of meaningful and I'm in the position where I don't have to work and so I can do only the things that I love and that I really want to do. So that's a really great position to be in. And before we go on, I should congratulate you on being awarded a Lifetime Achievement Award by the Walkleys. When you started out as a journalist, did you ever imagine that, you, A, you'd be nominated for 15, <laughs> win three, and now win the kind of ultimate award? I don't think so. I don't know. I don't know what I expected. Um, you know, I was just really lucky to know from a pretty early age, from when I was at school, that I wanted to be a journalist and to, you know, have found this profession and vocation, as I see it, that I really love and am really passionate about. I've always been pretty driven, so I guess I certainly always wanted to succeed at it. I can't remember really what I thought all those years ago. Well, as someone who's never won a Walkley, <laughs> I really just look at people like you, you know. Um, but the purpose of this podcast is to try to get some insights that are useful to young women starting out in their careers. And they might be uh, living in rural South Australia, um, the Northern Territory, or running huge teams in the public service in Canberra. And the thing I want to explore with you is your innate fearlessness. Your entire career is marked by producing stories which are often the hardest stories to produce. Did you start out as fearless or was it something that you developed along the way? Fearlessness is a really interesting concept. I mean, I wouldn't say that I'm fearless in that, you know, I have the same doubts and fears as pretty much all professional women, I think. And I think I probably grew up with a lot of fear. You know, the, we, I was in a family of five siblings. My dad was a war veteran and an alcoholic and committed suicide when I was eight. And my mum then brought up the five of us on her own. So it was kind of, you know, there were pretty tough times, but my mum was pretty determined to make sure that we, A, all got a good education and B, just got on with life. So we kind of never really talked about, you know, that difficult past, which in itself is problematic, but that's another story. So I, th I think I became quite resilient and able to kind of push through fear and get on with it. And I know that I was really determined from a young age to achieve something, to kind of make a success of myself in some way. So I always had that kind of pretty single-minded determination. I'm not fearless in that, as I said, you know, all of us have fears and doubts, but I'm not afraid of taking risks. In fact, I like taking risks. I'm not afraid of offending people. I mean, it's not that I don't care if people don't like me. I do. But I'm not afraid of offending people. I'm not afraid of pushing boundaries. I quite like being a bomb thrower now and then. And I'm very kind of single-minded in terms of what I think when I make judgments about things in, in terms of editorial or other judgments. And so I think those qualities end up looking like fearlessness. And I stick to my guns and I'm not afraid to say what I think which doesn't always win you friends, but um, I think, you know, why wouldn't you? <laughs> I think it's, it's really important when you're in a position of leadership with your colleagues and with the people who work with you and for you to be honest and to be a real straight shooter about what you think. So is it fair to say that your upbringing drove you to your ambition and your determination to carve out your own path? Yeah, I think that's definitely true. You know, I wanted to get out of there. I wanted to go somewhere else. I wanted to, much as, you know, my family were very loving, but I wanted to make something of myself just 
travel, do something exciting, have a big life. So, um, yeah, that was definitely part of it. Ambition? Were you described as ambitious at any point in your career? And how did you feel about it if you were? Yeah, no, definitely. I was definitely always ambitious and really driven and always felt I always had to prove myself. So that was a big thing as well. And I'm sure that's something that many women um, have and that's what drives many of us, the need to prove ourselves. And, you know, it can be, it can be tough because, you know, it's never good enough, but the benefit of it is that it keeps you going and it keeps you achieving the best you can do and the best you can be. Do you think your fearlessness then is linked to the profession and the honour of the profession? I think it is. I think it's all about the fact that I believe so strongly in the vocation of journalism and, you know, serious investigative public interest journalism. And I'm quite unswerving about that and really passionate about it. And, you know, I've turned out to be quite good at it over time and to have pretty good editorial judgment. So I'm fearless about those things in my professional life. There's a lot else, you know, in my private life and other parts of my life that I'm not fearless about. But I think it's because I kind of believe so strongly in what I'm doing and, and you know, have such a passion for it and believe that it's important and worthwhile that really, you know, gives me that quality in my working life. So I've seen fearlessness in young journalists and they're often the ones to be most terrified of because they're not as fully formed uh, in terms of the pain that you can cause others, the community backlash, the national debate. There's always someone who thinks what you did was a disgrace. The fact that you've continued to be the bomb thrower throughout your entire career is the bit that interests me. There must have been days when you thought, I really don't need this battle with this government minister today. I'm just going to, you know, seek a quieter life and not do that story. Well, maybe there's a whole heap of stories that are published. <laughs> you know, I've certainly had plenty of days where I didn't want to get out of bed because I was being, you know, publicly attacked by either, you know, newspapers or by the government or members of the government. But I think if you believe in what you're doing, and also I've had a lot of support around me. I've never worked solo. You know, I've always in these recent roles worked with a team of people who share the kind of really strong sense of purpose and mission and share my dedication to what we do. And so working with a team in that way and having, you know, the team support and mutual trust, I trust them because I know them and because they've earned my trust and they trust me because I've earned their trust. So having a really strong group of people around you when you're doing that kind of work is absolutely essential. To do it on your own would be a killer but it's the people that, you know, share my belief in what we're doing that keep me going. So you've got the story, you know it's controversial, you've done the work, your team's uh, fact-checked it within an inch of its life. You're going to run that story. You're the one at the top of the tree. The buck stops with you. What goes through your head? Is the story right? <laughs> Is it absolutely 100% factually accurate? And as you say, you know, we, I'm, I'm a, you know, obsessive fact checker as are, you know, most of the people I work with. Is it in the public interest? If it's not in the public interest, then, you know, there's no point often. Are you exposing the right people? One of the things I do agonise over is, 
you know, who we're exposing. If you're exposing, you know, a senior politician, say for corruption, for example, or, you know, a police chief or someone in a position of power, well, that's one thing. But when you're exposing, you know, it's the collateral damage, the bit players, the people who are drawn into it, they're the hardest decisions to make, I find, because that's where there's a much less clear public interest in exposing those people to the kind of shame and ignominy of, of you know, being outed, named and shamed in a, you know, investigative current affairs program. So I think about all those things. I think about is it ethical, is it moral? Have we ticked every single box legally? Have we, you know, given people a fair opportunity? There's a million things that I think about, but a lot of them are governed by the processes that we follow and I think when you're doing a high-wire job like that, having processes is incredibly important and that's a really big thing at Four Corners. The processes that, that we follow are really rigorous and prescriptive and there's not a lot of wriggle room in there and that's a big safety net because you don't want to be making kind of subjective, arbitrary decisions about difficult issues and I think I think that can apply probably in any professional type of work that, you know, you need to have really strict or really clear guidelines and expectations and standards and morals and, you know, ethical bars so that you're not making subjective decisions. You're making decisions that are kind of governed and determined by this really clear set of criteria. So your fearlessness is strong and it has been from an early age. What about leading a team with a range of personality types, some of which are not going to be as open to the public criticism. How do you manage that process? You have to treat people in a way that makes the most of their strengths. So not everyone has it in them to be a really hard-nosed investigative journalist who is constantly going to be having big public fights with public figures. You know, you can't make everyone do that kind of work and not everyone's got it in them. So for me, it's about always trying to establish what the strengths of individuals are, what they're really good at, and, you know, give them the opportunity to exceed in that area, to kind of bring whatever expertise or skills or, you know, even strong instincts they've got. Um, But you wake up in the morning and you're on the front page again Mm -hmm. of a particular newspaper (laughs) that's not happy with the story. And you know there are going to be team members that are really going to feel it. They're not going to be battle-hardened. They're not going to be even aware that when they published or broadcast that story, they're going into battle. Mm. You're, you know you're going into battle. Mm. You're ready for it that morning. Mm. What do you do about the team member that is like, oh, they've criticised us for this and oh, did we check that image and did it really happen? How do you, how do you manage the, mm. the, the team that feels it emotionally mm. and know that their mom and dad and husband and what's going to say, but your story's not right. Mm-mm. That bit of the puzzle is hard. Yeah, yeah. I think um, a lot of it has to do with collaboration before the event. So so I think I'm a really collaborative person, even though I, you know, am seen by some as a, a tough leader sometimes. But I think bringing the team with you and ensuring that everyone's on the same page during the project which involves just a lot of communication, a lot of hearing people's ideas, a lot of making sure that you know where people's heads are at and what they're thinking so that either you're bringing people along with you or else it might not even be me who's bringing everyone along, but someone is bringing the team along and everyone's on the same page. And then 
you know, when the shit hits the fan, people are much less likely to panic or freak out. You know, when the shit does hit the fan, I find it's important for me to show up, you know. I might not want to get out of bed when I've been on the front page of the newspaper for, you know, the third day in a row. But, um, you know, I show up and I'm kind of hanging in there and pushing on ahead and talking to people and, you know, talking about other stories and what everyone's doing and everything else that's going on. And so I think I find people are kind of encouraged and calmed by that and they realise that it's just part of the job if they can see other people getting on with it, even when it's getting really hard. How do you behave under pressure? I tend to go quiet. So I don't yell ever. I hardly ever raise my voice. I tend to internalise pressure. So I don't generally kind of take it out on people or vent. So people think I don't suffer from stress, but I do. I just suffer internally from it. I just try and, you know, go quiet and focus really closely on the decisions that have to be made and what has to be done. But, you know, on the other hand, I can just as easily go in fighting. So, you know, if I have to fight, for example, for an important story to go to air, I will do that. And that's not necessarily quiet. Are you self-aware enough to think that you're uh, whoever was managing you, because everyone has a manager somewhere, goes, oh, Sally's on the Sally's out the, out the front again. I know she's got a story I don't want to have to deal yeah, with. Sally sent another email. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. They do feel like that. Yeah, yeah, they do feel like that. Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, with the stories, it's pretty much always worth it because that's what you're there for. That's what I'm there for. You know, they, but it's probably less worth it for them sometimes when I'm sending them, you know, angry email that I haven't sort of put through one of my wise advisors first. But, you know, when when it's the journalism that you're fighting for and the journalism is good and, um, you know, clearly in the public interest, then usually they're supportive. And usually you win? More often than not, yeah. Usually I win, not always, but I don't think usually. you get to say as the EFIA Four Corners uh, for an extended period of time if you don't win most of your fights. Um, how did you learn to trust yourself and your judgment? I think um, I think it's just longevity. I think it's doing it for a long time, you know. So I had worked, I started off in commercial radio, worked in commercial television, moved to the ABC, worked in news, 7.30 was a correspondent, you know, worked on late line and foreign correspondent and Four Corners as a reporter for quite a few years. And reporting at Four Corners is where you're really going to learn, you know, the hard stuff. So I think it's basically just having done all those jobs for... 20 plus years before I became an EP. So it's a combination of that and just having that kind of focus that I am fortunate to have and the single-minded determination that I'm fortunate to have. What sort of leader would you describe yourself as? You've already given us a bit of a hint. You're a bomb thrower, you're tough, you're resilient. How would you describe yourself more broadly? I should say, by the way, risk taker rather than bomb thrower. Mm. Um, I think I'm a strong leader sometimes tough, very focused, single-minded, very collaborative. I love working in a team. I've mentored a lot of young, particularly women journalists over the years. That's something I'm proud of and something I love doing. The, the working in the team ha- is the part of my job that I love almost as much as the actual journalism. I think they'd say that I, I really care, that I've got a big heart, that I'm compassionate sometimes, 
that I am too hands-on, that I get too involved in people's work. And in my mind, I do it because I want every story to be as good as possible. But, you know, there's probably occasions where I should be letting, you know, the team members do more of the work and me do less of it. I think, you know, some people would say I'm a hard-ass bitch. People who, particularly who I've had to deal with in terms of managing their performance when they've been underperforming or managers with whom I've fallen out. And of course, you know, a woman who's a strong leader is much more likely to be called a hard-ass bitch than, well, a man's not going to be called that. No. Yeah, so I think all those things. So to the listeners, it's really rare to find journalists of Sally's calibre to produce year in, year out stories that change the national conversation. There is a real fearlessness in anyone who can do that. Do you think it's something, Sally, that you can learn or do you think it, you kind of have to have it as part of your makeup? I think it's a bit of both. I think you can certainly encourage it and foster it in people. And I think if you give people who are doing a really difficult, you know, high-wire job enough support, giving them support is a critical factor in enabling people to either, you know, conquer their fear or else. It's actually probably more about, it's about calculating risks rather than being fearless. And probably being fearless is something you've either got or if you haven't. But but learning to calculate risks and take calculated risks is something you can learn. And I think if you give people enough support and expertise and, and backing and you know, training and knowledge and information, then, you know, that does facilitate people being able to be more prepared to take risks. Risk-taking is a really good way of describing it because every one of those stories you published would be a risk to some extent. When did you get it wrong? Or did you never get it wrong? No, I'm Or do you just no, feel like me and you just don't remember the ones you got wrong? I don't remember the ones <laughs> I got wrong. Um I'm yeah. sure I got, if you can, of if, course if, if, I got them wrong. People, anyone who listens to this will ring me up and they, say, remember the one you got wrong? But, I, but in a sense, this is this is goes to how you do it mm. because you don't, they're not scarred by it. Mm. It, hasn't, it hasn't kind of left you so wounded that mm. you didn't get out of bed and do the next story. Yeah. I mean, and the ones that left me wounded aren't necessarily the ones I got wrong. Like, you know, you remember a couple of the very high-profile stories we did, one about a senior politician who was um, accused of a historic sexual offence, and that was an incredibly controversial story and a polarising story, and I always believed that story was important and in the public interest. And I think because I'm, I tend to be very focused and single-minded, I sometimes don't anticipate the extent of blowback there's going to be. I know there's going to be blowback, but but I'm sometimes surprised at the extent of it. Because you... Because to, so, me, to me, it's obvious. It's so obvious, Of yeah. course it's a story. Yes. Of course it's in the public interest. Of course we would report it. Mm. And so the fact that, you know, quite a few people took the view that we shouldn't even have reported it. That a lot it of people. wasn't a legitimate even in your story. Own, even in your own profession. Yes, yeah. Does that hurt more than if it's in the general public? No, no, that itself doesn't hurt because any leader has to make decisions and not everyone's going to agree with them. And any editorial leader has to make decisions about what to publish and what not to publish. And someone's got to make those decisions and it happened to be me on certain occasions. And someone's always going to disagree. So 
It's just part of it, really. Um, Imagine if you hadn't run that story. Yeah, I know. One of the questions that I was talking to the producer about before you came was trauma. And this has changed a lot in our lifetime in reporting about understanding trauma in reporting. You must have seen an awful lot in your time in reporting on terrorism. I saw Sally Sara's play um, talking Mm -hmm. about her experience, very celebrated ABC foreign correspondent who lived through a lot Mm. of trauma. Tell me a bit about that experience as a reporter and now as a manager of people who potentially come into contact with trauma. Yeah, well, as you say, we're much more aware of it now. When I started as a journalist and probably when you started as a journalist, there was, it wasn't even recognised as a thing at all. You know, journalists went off and covered wars and horrific, you know, disasters and there was never any consideration given to their well-being and, you know, journalists, it was a badge of pride for journalists to, to be, say, oh, I wasn't influenced or to behave as though. And in those early days it was all men. And then it, yes. then it switched. Yes. Quite dramatically. Yes, yep. that's true. Yes, yeah, so I was a correspondent and, you know, covered some hairy stories, some wars in places and, as you say, I did a lot of work on terrorism. I was in probably the, the one that, you know, is clearest to me is I was in Bali the, the day after the bombings and, you know, went to the scene, which was just, you know, a smoking ruin. Went to the hospital where, you know, there were lots of terribly burned people waiting for treatment. There was a room where there were body parts um, stacked up. There were bodies lined up in the corridors. And actually, I still get a little bit emotional when I talk about that. I don't think it scarred me, but... Um, Maybe it did if I still get emotional talking about it. Maybe it's good that you do. Yeah. Well, yeah, maybe it is. That's right. But um, we're we're much more vigilant about it now. We um, have, you know, counselling services and actively offer counselling to people who have covered really traumatic stories. In the past, I think journalists would have been embarrassed to take advantage of those sort of services to admit that they've been affected, whereas now I think journalists generally, you know, acknowledge that, that... often they're facing the same sort of traumatic impacts as first responders because they are amongst the first on the scene of horrific events and often stay there long after the initial impact. So, yeah, I think we've become much better at recognising that and dealing with it, although I still do think that journos still kind of feel obliged to, you know, tough it out and appear as though it hasn't affected them. And what are you seeing on the front line of managing younger journalists in terms of, I I guess what I'm hinting at here is the propensity for younger team members to be completely open about mental health issues. And what does that mean for a leader in those circumstances to send them into difficult situations? For me, it's all about communication and discussing it with them. Because if, if someone, and I've had the experience with someone or a journalist who I know has had mental health issues puts up their hand to go and cover a really tough story and they want to do it. And my view is if they want to do it, then you give them all the support you can and you, you know, talk to them about exactly what you think it's going to be like and you talk to them before and during and after. But if people want to do it, then, you know, they have to be allowed and and supported to cover those really hard stories. Okay, so you've had four months off. You've been travelling around Europe. That means you're probably... Absolutely devouring podcasts and books. Tell us about it. What I've are you read a lot of books. I'm reading historical fiction because, as I <laughs> you're going to write one to, to that, I have a 
Secret or what? Well, secret until today, urge to write historical fiction. And I was in Europe, so I was really into reading stories about the places I was in. So when I was in France, I reread Hilary Mantel's amazing book about the French Revolution, A Place of Greater Safety, which is one of my all-time favourite books. I love all her books. Terrible that we lost her so soon. While I was in Greece, I read a book called The Song of Ulysses, which is a fictionalised account of, you know, the legendary Greek hero Ulysses. Achilles, sorry. Mm-hmm. I've been reading some Michael Lacare because I'm starting to think about writing a book so another book. So I'm interested in just, you know, reading different styles of writing and, and, you know, that obviously is not historical fiction, although it's kind of, you know, somewhat akin to it. So that's the kind of stuff I've been reading. Podcasts, my favourite recent podcast was a 20-part series by an American academic, Donald Kagan, about ancient Greece, which, of course, was another one I got into while in Greece. So that was really fabulous. And, you know, what I love about that kind of stuff is it's a completely different world from the world that I've been working in. And at the moment, I'm just really interested in, you know, doing stuff and reading stuff and watching stuff and thinking about stuff that is not part of the same journalistic world that I've been in in the past, although I've definitely got more journalism to do. Sally Neighbour, it's a privilege to talk to you about your career and to learn a few of your leadership insights. Um, fascinated to know what you do next, but please have a long holiday and uh, we'll tune in no matter what you do. Thank you and thanks for having me. It's been great. This podcast was recorded on the land of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. We pay our respects to elders past and present. Executive producer is Jennifer Goggin. Series producer is Holly Mitchell and audio imaging by Nat Marshall.